0: This evening, it's a great pleasure to welcome back an old friend to the Friends of the Book Arts Press and to Rare Book School, Mr. Roger Stoddard, who is Senior Lecturer on English in Harvard College, Secretary to the Friends of the Harvard College Library, and Curator of Rare Books in the Harvard College Library, and uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome him back here tonight.
1: Good evening. In uh, untenured te- mode, Terry Bellinger would offer me the chance to try new things, a lecture, a course, and for that I remain indebted to him. Now, in fully tenured mode, hip, hip, hooray, he... He offers me yet another chance, proving that rank and station cannot spoil the rude innocence of my old friend. Are you really ready for another one, Terry? <laughs> Here we go, slides and all looking at books, learning from it, passing it along. From my European bookbinding trip, book-buying trip, I've been talking with Bernard about his new book, a year ago, subject of my talk this evening, I returned with three emblems of my journey. Au lecteur fervent, salut! by Gerard Blanchard Typograph, in a recent book on design that I found at Bobor. Questa sera spagna la televisione, un libro e meglio in Hippley's bookshop window in Milan. And to spare you further novel pronunciations of the modern language, one fondly hopes that this piece, too short to be boring, will amuse by a philosophical tone well-suited to the taste of the moment by Marc Michel Ray in his introduction to one of Hempster Hoyce's letters in 1770. As I composed my thoughts about my experiences abroad, I began to see the relevance to my line of work of some of the things I had been reading by or about the great natural scientist Louis Agassiz. In his eulogy, William James exposed Agassiz's method. Go to nature, take the facts into your own hands, look and see for yourself. These were the maxims which Agassiz preached wherever he went, and their effect on pedagogy was electric. The extreme rigor of his devotion to this concrete method of learning was the natural consequence of his own peculiar type of intellect in which the capacity for abstraction and causal reasoning and tracing chains of consequences from hypotheses was so much less developed than the genius for acquaintance with vast volumes of detail and for seizing upon analogies and relations of the more proximate and concrete kind. The last word on the discipline of observation was set forth by Agassiz in his Lowell Lectures. The glance at the moon or at Jupiter's satellites, which the chance visitor at an observatory is allowed to take through the gigantic telescope, reveals nothing to him of the intense concentrated watching by which the observer wins his higher reward. The nightly vision of the astronomer, revealing myriad worlds in the vague, nebulous spaces of heaven, is not for him. He must take the great results of astronomy for granted, since no man capable of original research has the time to prepare for the uninitiated, the attendant circumstances essential to his more difficult investigations, or to train their eyes to see what he sees." And here is a good example of what Agassiz could convey. The similarity of motion in families is another subject well worth the consideration of the naturalist. The soaring of the birds of prey, the heavy flapping of the wings in the gallinaceous birds, the floating of the swallows with their short cuts and regular turns, the hopping of the sparrows, the deliberate walk of the hens and the strut of the cocks, the waddle of the ducks and geese, the slow, heavy creeping of the land turtle, the graceful flight of the sea turtle under the water, the leaping and swimming of the frog, the swift run of the lizard like a flash of green or red light in the sunshine. In short, every family of animals has its characteristic action and its peculiar voice. And yet so little is this endless variety of rhythm and cadence both of motion and sound In the organic world understood that we lack the words to express one half its richness and beauty. From the 28th of April 1985, when I fled visiting committee weekend for London, until the 21st of May, when I returned from Milan, I looked at books in 53 bookshops, libraries, museums, and private collections in London, Long Sutton and Bourne, Lincolnshire, Oxford, Blackheath, Seven Oaks, Paris, and Milan. I will tell you about that experience, but I will not bore you with a complete account, and I will conclude with some remarks about you and your own libraries, demonstrating how far short of Agassiz's ideal I have fallen, and how close you can come if you will try. The purpose of my trip was library acquisitions of books and manuscripts, but I looked at a few books for other reasons, as you will see. I began my peregrinations with a full day at Bernard Quaritch's, where an energetic young staff, led by Arthur Freeman and Nicholas Poole Wilson, with a rich line of credit, maintains a marvelous stock of science, economics, continental literature, and English literature, among other things a Japanese stock, as they say. And what prices? Everything, whether French romantique, humanism, or a Spanish vivace on the education of women, seemed to be 150% of retail, sure defense against raids by specialist dealers of a dependable stock of rarities for collectors and libraries. I left a stack for quotation, wondering what we could afford among our desiderata. Early books are capital investments nowadays. We have the lights turned. Next day at Pickering and Chateau, now owned by Sir William rees Mogg, I had the thrill of browsing the remnants of Dudley Massey's lifetime of squirreling away favourite rarities while he supported himself by selling other items. There was a Congreve, probably the last one lacking at Harvard, but it wanted its half title and the paper was browned. $2,500 for one of the three copies known to be on ordinary paper, in addition to the three copies on fine. More to my liking was Bromley's, that is, Anthony Wilson's Catalogue of Engraved British Portraits, 1793, with Sir Christopher Sykes's bookplate by J. E. Millet, but owned previously by Sir Mark Masterman Sykes, who had used it as a catalog of his own portrait print collection. Here, for instance, you see the description of the Marshall engraving of Thomas Scott, STB at geograph, with Sykes's annotation, good. Here is a copy of that very print, which we purchased from Dudley Massey's cache Thomas Scott, STB, author of numerous pamphlets whose false imprints or lack of imprint have puzzled bibliographers. And from the same lot, we got this unrecorded German rendition of a powder plot broadside, the English original of which rests unique at Harvard. This later anti-Quaker broadside, which shows that no number of Quaker books could ever outweigh a single copy of the Bible. This satire on some evangelicals who are doubtless identifiable to those well acquainted with the religious and social history of the day, and this wonderful satirical print showing that Sir Robert Walpole, though out of office, continued to pull the strings as if behind a screen. Also from Dudley's things came this rare survival. A conjure document for an early 19th century edition of Goldsmith's animated nature. At the top is a draft advertisement, and at the bottom a list of the shareholders and their parts. Overleaf are the expenses of the edition. Notice that the engraved plates were the most costly item by more than half, the payments of the copyright holders according to their shares, and the dates and costs of the advertisements. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights of my first week, I spent in the North Library of the British Library looking first at La Maitrie, the 18th-century materialist philosopher whose bibliography I am essaying, obtaining a Xerox of a cancel leaf so I could later compare it with a cancel at the Bibliothèque Nationale, then beginning to look at the elegant philosophical works of the late 18th-century amateur Hemsterhuis. In the auction catalogue of Hemsterhuis's library, sold obviously in shelf order, I found his red-ruled copies of his own books listed just before his copies of La Metrie. His books, wide-margined and heavily leaded, are illustrated with emblematic head and tail pieces engraved after designs by Hemsterhuis, who explains them in the text. Already I can see that copies occur on both fine and ordinary paper. More variations may emerge as I check out more copies while filling out Harvard's collection. This new edition, the first collected works, printed posthumously, but employing the original coppers, came from André Jam later in the trip. At Maggs Brothers on Barclay Square, I saw for the first time full shelves of Colun of Loos books from a recent sale, all as new in a full 18th century calf. Some Sight. This one came later in the trip from Theodore Hoffman. But for us at Maggs's, there were ephemeral pamphlets and broadsides of the 17th and 18th century feigned visions, counterfeit revelations, false miracles, horrid impieties, lying, dying speeches of the Jesuits. A broadside describing an earthquake in Oxfordshire. Another anti-Quaker broadside. The dying words of the last English printer to be executed for seditious libel. A fair number of the 17th century pieces were not in old wing and some not even in New Wing. Along with the ephemera in mags's basement was this disbound treatise on color by one of the members of the Sowerby family which dominated the production of color plate books in some of the sciences in the 19th century. Is this plate by Sowerby or Max Ernst? And this one, could it be Tom Phillips? At Allen Thomas's, I admired, as before, a 14th-century astronomical tract manuscript on vellum from North France. Later, with Stanley Carl's help, we purchased it, some four years since I had been looking at it admiringly but hopelessly out of funds. At Marlborough Rare Books, there were vellum-bound Fletcher of Saltoun copies of Italian books, and 17th and 18th century translations into German, or Italian, of theoretical and practical art monographs. Also, a wonderful survival of an STC book of 1612. A strip of paper, perhaps one and a half inches wide, was folded over the spine, stabbed through and stitched, as first offered for sale, but too expensive. At the Wellcome Historical Medical Library, I caught up with a few more of La Mettrie's cancels. When you find a cancel in the third copy you examine, you must backtrack and explain the differences. Oh, joy of bibliography. Madame Keti Arvanitidi is the widow of a collector of books on the Greek church and its possible union with the Roman. This trip, as before, I left her flat with two sacks of books, 16th-century imprints from Antwerp, Zurich, Turin, and Rome, with some more exotic ones from monasteries to the east. Here, for instance, in what is probably a Venetian binding, gilt with a crucifixion on the front cover, and stamped in silver on the back, I think you can find Christ and count the Twelve Apostles is an imprint of 1698 from Jassy in Romania, only the 105th book to be printed in that country. Here is an imprint of 1744 from Albania, Moskopoulos, now Vaskobča, St. Luke on the title page. Excuse me. There's the Vaskobča imprint. St. Luke on the title page and worn blocks in the text from sources that could be traced. Here is a Viennese imprint of 1805, a guide to the conduct of life by one of the Mavro Cordatoi. Arvanitidi thought so much of it that he had Poseidon's trident and the dolphins from his book plate gilt and painted on the covers. Albi Rosenthal's stock at Oxford is in transition from the firm's old interest in Portuguese books Last time I bought a vast number of 17th, 18th, and 19th century books and pamphlets there, and his daughter Julia's new interest in French books. Among other things, we tried, on general principles, a stack of comet tracts, which turned out to contain this one. Back at the library, the searching report showed that we had only a Bologna edition of 1655, That, of course, is the place and date of the great first collected edition of Galileo. Sure enough, the little pamphlet is by Orazio Grassi, one of Galileo's principal detractors, the one lampooned in Il Saggiatore, is important enough to be collected in the Galileo works of 1655, and to rate a full entry in the Galilean bibliography of Cinti, together with a reproduction of its title page. That noble Catalan of Oxford, John Gili, offered his usual Lyle and Heredia copies of Spanish books. One of the most interesting finds this time was this study of Provencal and Catalan poets printed at Rome in 1724 by the De Rossi, with the device of the Roman Arcadian Academy on its title page. Whether this is a friendly or unfriendly frontispiece, I can hardly say, for thrust into this handsome, tall old library with its Corinthian capitals over the columns which separate the cases is an ugly, squat, modern secretary, half filled with huge fat works of the moderns, Tasso, Varki, Bembo, etc. Above is an expression from the Paradiso Conquesta Moderna Favella in this modern language, taken from one of the books in which Dante questions his great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguida about his own family and Florentine families of the good old 12th century. But Dante says that his ancestor addressed him con voce piu dolce e suave in a voice sweeter and gentler, that is either Latin or old Florentine dialect, ma non con moderna favela, but not in this modern speech, which might be Catalan or Provençal. The list of Provençal and Catalan authors arranged by Christian name even analyzes the contents of manuscripts at the Vatican and Laurentian libraries. Concluding my Oxford Sunday and my first week abroad, Diana Perichian showed me Italian books, mostly obscure ones with illustrations, including this tiny emblem book, another De Rossi imprint, honoring the 90th birthday of Pope Clement XI in 1702. See how the emblems are tucked into these little floral pockets. At Andrew Stewart's in Bourne, I put aside a stack of grubby Italian, German, and French translations of English books, European Britannica. They looked as if they had been rummaged out of Dutch stocks, exactly what they say Stewart does on his bicycle. This one is typical, a French translation of Thomas White's Perfect Christian, printed at Queville, which I take to be a suburb of Rouen in 1674 by Jacques Luca, Sign of the Globes, who has adopted Plantin's labor and compasses in his device. Luca declares that labor joins both sides, showing us how it is possible to link both a terrestrial and a celestial globe joining heaven and earth. Alex Rogoisky at Long Sutton offered his usual attractive stock of continental books on many subjects, all inexpensive and useful and well-described. On its face, this appears to be a technical treatise, but when you begin to look at it, you see that it is really about, as my assistant puts it, cone heads on the moon. Well, when they start talking about squaring the circle, you know the book isn't serious, right? Jim Burmester, who had recently joined Paul Grinkey in London, had a fascinating lot of provincial English printing, literature, science, and popular books. This one in falsely grained leather is my favorite. It is an Italian translation of William Collins's Odes, printed at Piacenza in 1814, dedicated to the English soldier Robert Wilson, whose copy, the dedication copy, this is. E.P. Goldschmidt always has wonderful copies of illustrated books, but it is sometimes difficult to find books there for Houghton. This time there was a Russian pharmacopoeia, a 17th century attack on Inquisition censorship, and this 18th century illustrated dialectic from Freiburg in Breisgau, 1771. I wonder if that title page vignette could stand for Johann Andreas Satron, its publisher. Anything is possible in a Baroque book like this. I wonder what they're building, including wonderful plates like this rendering of the gateway to wisdom. As you see, we progress by meditation to liberal arts, sciences, wisdom, and finally to the holy of holies, in which idea, judgment, and reason are revealed, all amidst balconies, towers, and emblems that would baffle Escher. In England, my last visits were with Stuart Bennett and Theodore Hoffman, American expatriates from California. Here are things from Bennett's. A broadside poem of 1683 inscribed at the foot, knowledge is no burden, doubtless a writing teacher's catch. A sermon of Tudor Flint, printed in Boston in 1729 by Samuel Gerrish, who has inscribed it to Isaac Watts, whose logic was used at Harvard College and who sent to its library copies of his books as they were published. A Dublin printed astronomy of 1732 with engravings in sepia. A country book printed on thick paper, Bible poems to be memorized, Norwich, 1711. And this anonymous book. By its heavily patterned binders cloth, we can date it to the 1830s, I think, Sue Ellen. But whether it is British or American is hard to say Could that be Philadelphia? No, Wakefield, England, 1838, with poems to Shelley as well as to George Washington, so far as we can tell, quite unknown. Finally, this Regency binding in Smooth Calf from Boston, not ours, but the other one in Lincolnshire. Ted Hoffman, One of the great experts offered me the second revised edition of Dodley's collection of poems, not just the sort of thing he discovers so usefully for collectors and libraries. Also, he conveyed the only real perception that any of the English booksellers could give me this visit. There is no designated second edition for many 18th century English books. They skip from an undesignated first edition to third, fourth, etc. Such books were often issued in both large and small paper, which the publishers counted as two editions instead of one. He is busily filling out the British Library holdings of these books with either small or large paper, many of the possibles coming from the Colune of Lewis collection. I spent part of my last evening in England with a widow of Sir William Empson, whose papers we hoped to purchase, counting notebooks, letter files, checking annotated books. With Ted Hoffman's help, we later concluded the deal. Here are some samples. Not locus, if you will, but envelope. Messy, but wonderful. Can we have a change at the uh, projector? Across the channel, I ranged through three bookshops in my first afternoon in Paris. The poor remnant of Marc Lollier's stock, he is dead five years now, the lively modern literature stock of his son Bernard, and the quite miscellaneous stock of Robert de Valette. Thanks to the enterprise of Louis Batuel, Madame Marc Lollier's young manager, there were a few new things to be found. One was this astrology tra- text by Crisogun with its title page border so well suited to the new film, Labyrinth, printed at Venice by the De Sabio in 1528. It concludes with a paper instrument to help you find your house for which the privilege from the Venetian Senate is printed underneath. Louis also had this letter by the Belgian artist Ensor written about Gelderoda, partly unpublished, and illustrated with this unpublished drawing. At Young Lollier's, there was a Grand Papier Georges Sand, which you can barely see here through its chemise. I hope you can see quite clearly in this detail of the half-title that the paper is that special crinkled French stock which goes back at least to the days of Byron. Later, on Ascension Day afternoon, Young Lollier offered me his From his private collection, I don't like to sell my manuscripts, he said, a 200-page manuscript of Georges Bataille. Actually, it is a tract manuscript made up of individual texts like this one, Dirty, and this one, Sky Blue. Valette had a colored copy of that wonderful folding caricature of authors and other French celebrities of the Romantic period, of which an uncolored copy hangs in the Balzac house. Here, astride his siren Pegasus, you see Ego in the lead, ugly is beautiful, with Gautier just behind, Lamartine in the clouds, the elder Dumas with a pack of titles on his back, Balzac just behind his left foot, the, pl- the playwright Screeb chugging along at 50 horsepower with a tender full of collaborators, all of them traveling the great road to posterity. Vallette also had a wonderful collection of engraved folio size advertisements of the 18th century, including one for a toy shop at the sign of the monkeys. Andre Jam offered a book with a frontispiece after Verlaine, Haller's Advice on Forming a Library, 1771, the Portuguese edition of Osorio's letter to Elizabeth of England, inviting her to return to the Catholic faith, and a copy, as new, of the plates to illustrate La Nouvelle Eloise, 1761. Not only is this epistola a splendid example of European Britannica, but it also shows the continuing use of Geoffrey Tory woodcut borders, which Anne Anniger has traced from their early arrival in the 1530s in Lisbon through the hands of many Portuguese printers over the years. More than anyone else, perhaps, Jam is responsible for the serious acceptance of photographs in museums such as the Getty, and I tried to get him to speak for us at Houghton for the fall. When I told him of Hugh Amory's plan to make an exhibition with me on authority in books, crosses, crowns, imprimitors, mimicry, forgery, etc., Jam said, Why not include liberty? Good idea. Jean Hugues combines an art gallery, bookshop, and the publication of painter's books, so he could show me wonderful Mata, Miro, and Michaud books, things for Eleanor Garvey to consider. Here is the limp vellum wrapper of a modern classic, Afat, 1940. Its title page, a sample of the text by Ilya Zdanevich from Tiflis, the 41st degree, who came to Paris calling himself Iliazd. Who would dare to illustrate such a text? Who would know what it is all about? Ig also showed me bindings by two active French artisans, Dagonet and Monique Mathieu. Where cord crosses hinge, Dagonet makes a knuckle joint out of metal fiber, screen, or plastic, and he has devised a supple binding, articulated, of vertical plates mounted on a flexible material, a new structure. Mathieu has created what I came to call a craquet, for she arranges fissures about her onlays of somber autumn colors. Both binders are superb craftsmen unlike so many of the designer bookbinders whose work is publicized these days. Also at Eugues was a book I had never seen before, The Mitozems of Henri Michaud, pedestrian perhaps in its published form with the plates cropped close, rather more exciting in the extra sweets in yellow, green, and red. That evening, I spent with Henri Schiller, the industrialist who began to collect book bindings under the tutelage of Georges Elbrun. He knows more about his field than any other collector I have met, where the books are, and manuscripts too, all the classic types. The secret of collecting is knowing when not to buy, he says. Good advice for book bindings. Schiller opens his cases for you, laden with pure, unsophisticated books from the 17th century back to the earliest Arabic and Western gilt bindings. Touch it, take it, open it, he says. What a host. Christian Galantaris, once a useful dealer in 19th century books, is now expert in the book auctions, so he cannot work on his stock, and I can have a good look at Petit Romantique, a multi-volume Eugène Sue novel in printed wrappers, stacks of books at affordable prices. At Garnier-Arnoul, I bought collections of popular plays, 1780, 1820, formed by the playwrights themselves. This one consists of quantities of minor theatrical works written by Guersaint, bound at his order for a family member in five volumes decorated on the spine with lyres and with the masks of comedy and tragedy. Also from him, I bought for my friend, Carlo Alberto Chiesa, a Commedia dell'arte mask, just to remind him of a special interest of ours. Coulet, the first edition dealers, were disappointing. But afterward, I spent a pleasant evening with Monique Mathieu of the Relieux Craquet, her husband, the poet André Fréno we must start to collect him, and a book curator from the Louvre at a dinner arranged by J. E. Gautreau. Twenty years a clerk at Blaiseau, Gautreau opened a shop on Rue de Seine in October, and we all had a good look at his growing stock, including Mathieu bindings, of course. At L'Arsenal, I took in the show of 19th and 20th century Belgian book bindings arranged by the Bibliotheca Vittachiana, Brussels. Included was a beautiful modern binding by Auguste Couch, sprayed with silver, reminding one of audion Redon's Orientalia, pastiche bindings by Haguet, and truly imaginative paper publisher's bindings, Cartonnage d'éditer, by J. Casterman et Fies, about 1850, one of them in silver and blue paper, another, this Rococo binding of gold on white. The rest were French bindings made in Belgium. Too bad the show didn't begin with those emblematic plaque bindings of the the 1530s, or with truly early bindings so one could disentangle Belgian from French. (coughs) Claude Blaiseau's stock is in transition from 19th and early 20th century French literature to contemporary printing, binding, and illustration. For generations, Blezo's had expertized book auctions and published text editions and bibliographies. No more. Monsieur Blaiseau took me down to the basement stock which Gautreau had shown me five years before. Then I had found a Zola I had hunted for years and a Valérie I never hoped to find. Not so good this time. Later in the same afternoon, I called on Maurice Bazzy, installed in Mags's old shop, which he has piled solid with 19th-century French books. For us, there was an early Jules Verne, published before the Voyage Imaginaire, and many a plaquette associated with one of our collected authors. And talk of books. How can a reader understand Balzac without seeing how the author cast out his lines in those marginous, widely leaded, multi-volume octavos? The Belgian Contrefaçon, and even today's Pleiade, give the wrong impression. The 12 mots of Molière show that he was considered only an amuser, while the noble quartos of Cornea demonstrate the serious esteem in which he was held. From Bazzi's sh- crowded shop to Pierre Beres's expansive home across from the Rodin Museum, talk switched to the sale that day at Monaco. Beres had picked a bargain an unknown French devotional book of 1683, a 12-mo in vellum wrappers gilt with the arms of the author's wife, illustrated with ten engravings, seven of them incorporating his arms. A very elegant family production. After supper, one could look at Stendhal's diaries, royal bindings, a stunning polyphilus, while Beres explained his theory of how that strange book came to be printed by Aldus. Next day, at the Bibliothèque Nationale, I resolved my problem with La Mettrie's Cancels, while checking out some troublesome books published by Ronald Davis, an Englishman who made fashionable among the French aristocrats the collecting of modern first editions during the time of Sylvia Beach and Adrienne Monnier. I am making a list of his imprints. Also I looked at some Hemsterhuis and some of the books of Brunet, the great bibliographer. At the end of that bibliographical day, I met Beres at his shop. While he introduced me to the editor of the Diderot edition he is publishing, I formulated the expression, la bibliographie materielle, c'est la folie anglaise et le malaise américain. Anyhow, while Monsieur Editor viewed an unknown manuscript that was to come up for auction, I looked up a number of manuscripts. Consulting by phone with Rodney Dennis that Friday night, I telephoned bids to Beres from Milan on the Monday, and a cable two days after my return announced success. We had bought a 234-page working manuscript of Paul Adam, 1891, two and a half working drafts of The Elephant (coughs) from Histoire Naturelle of Jules Reynard, the text that equally inspired Ravel and Toulouse Lautrec, This drawing is by Reynard, not Lautrec, and a 202-page typed manuscript inscribed with red and blue layers of corrections of the 1933 novel Le Coup de Lune by Simenon. You see, he did revise his text. That Wednesday, I worked the stock of Lucien Scheler, Science and Literature, and left Italian, German, and French books for quotation, begging Lucien to help us find Éloire's second book. Two years ago, he had sold us the first and third. His young successor, Bernard Clavroy had this Arabic grammar from the Cairo branch of Napoleon's National Printing House and this unfindable little technical manual by Dr. Louis de Touche, a.k.a. Céline. At Jean Viardot's, there was humanism, including an early edition of Melanchthon's Locke Comunes with extensive contemporary manuscript notes, and this reprint of the standard Renaissance guide to Muscovy by Herberstein. This copy, as you see, passed from the great French collector Étienne Balous into the hands of one of the Duperron, and then into a seminary for missionaries to foreign parts. Its woodcut map is revised. Also at Viardot was this rare Nifo. Venice 154, explaining to physicians and others the right day for action. It has one of those registers which is based on the first word on the recto of each bifolium, omnes sunt duerni- duerniones. Felix Polonsky, our Russian agent, had Pasternak's second book for me. This one from the Centrifuge Press and he had located a comparably good copy of the first, which I ordered on the spot. Also, he had two fascinating ABC books. The one by ballet designer Alexandre Benoit, pre-revolutionary, is influenced by Crane, Caldecott, and Greenaway, although some of the subjects could only be Russian. The other, revolutionary, is ammunition in the Soviet campaign against illiteracy, but it is a rare edition, mentioning Trotsky. On the way back from supper that Wednesday night, I found the is toiling away at 10 o'clock, so I knocked on their window and got their list of the books they had put aside for me. On Thursday, Ascension, I called again on Jean Hugues to see more illustrated books, on the widow of the great bookseller, Georges Elbrun, to pay respect, and on Le Colonel Sickles to keep in touch. Sickles, an American expatriate, is the greatest collector of 19 19- condition. Sickles berated me for the way in which I had used Bérès as agent to purchase the manuscript of Mur à Crédit by Céline at his auction sale two years ago. Bérès and Sickles had battled it out at the Guérin sale a few days before, both paying ridiculous prices, bonded with spite. After Young Lollier and his Bataille manuscript, I went off with G. Sabag, mystery dealer of Paris, and an old mail-order source of Houghton's, we looked at philosophy, bibliography, literature, science, putting aside items for offer later. Thierry Baudin, in whose shop I began work Friday morning, expertizes autograph sales. Like Galantaris, he must neglect his stock, so it is full of 18th, 19th, and 20th century philosophical, musical, scientific, and literary manuscripts. New York antiquarian bookseller is making note. Albert Roussel's first symphony, a Morand manuscript on big placards just like the elder Dumas, we did well for with him. For me, there were two letters of J.C. Brunet, a late one about a collector, such books are only rare in the cabinets of collectors who refuse them, and an early one to an Elsevier bibliographer who had taken issue with Brunet's statements in the manual. Later that morning, In Rousseau-Girard's basement, I could find nothing but a few tracts by Chateaubriand. I used to have such good luck there, but poor Rousseau-Girard is hospitalized with Alzheimer's and Madame is doing well to get the catalogs out all by herself. Upstairs, there was an early Petersburg Euler, 1730s, that I did not recall, which we turned out to have, and some Italian and German translations of 18th century scientific works by English or French scholars. Here, for instance, is Vegetable Statics, as rendered into Italian and printed in Naples in 1756. Sunday, I flew to Milan for just one bookseller, Carlo Alberto Chiesa, in whose stock I spent all day Monday. Don't you ever get tired of looking at books, Roger? He begged at 7 o'clock. The richest stock of all, I told him. Three volumes, Pezzetti, Vari e in Rima, contained over 118th and 17th century popular books from many cities, mostly in verse. Here, sold on the Rialto in 1766, is the life of the Empress Flavia, and printed for distribution at Venice and Bassano, to say nothing of other places in 1687 by the Remondini manufacturers of decorated paper, as well as dealers in books, is a reminder of the great victory over the Turks. Here, to remind you that wormy woodblocks were used just as often in Italy as they were in France or Germany or England, is the fall of Naples, with a very ancient cut of a scholar. Beside these were three Venetian chapbook editions in modern Greek. Here is Aesop hunching his back over his book of fables in an unrecorded Venetian edition by Nicholas Glucas, and here is one of two popular books, also printed by Glucus, about a folk hero who seems to be but who turns out to be an import to Greek culture, Bertoldo. As you see from his hairy flanks, he is none too swift a character. Indeed, he is covered with flies as he journeys to call on the king. Perhaps Chiesa's greatest book is the dissertation of Vico, the true beginning of the Scienza Nuova, 1709, a copy inscribed to one Biagio Carofatto. But this book isn't so bad either. The prospectus for the Italian lending library to be operated by Mozart's librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, and Cognoscenti of New York, including Professor Anthon and Clement Clark Moore. A treat to see, a joy to buy. We projected a Houghton exhibition made of beautiful books no larger than Torey's Chamfleury, Aldous's Day Etna, some Lyonnaise books of literature, 1540-60, to 60, Holbein's Dance of Death, a Martyrsteig post-war book, some of the German fine printing between the wars. I titled it at once, Small Enough to Handle, Big Enough to Read, Watch for Future Developments. We were still talking about books on the way to the airport Tuesday morning, Carlo Alberto, promising to wear his Punchinello mask while drinking the California wine I had brought him. There, I've passed it along, but looking, learning. Agassiz would not be pleased with me and my friends in hot pursuit of articles densely packed with intellectual and artistic beauty. No disinterestedness there. No myriad worlds in the vague nebulous spaces of heaven. Not all bad, but back in the library things settle down and a narrow point of view can broaden and round out. How do you really look at books so as to learn from it? Perhaps you refrain from identifying the text so that you can concentrate on size and shape, covers and paper, types and arrangement, pictures and ornament. What did people make the book look like to begin with, and what did they do with it afterward? Then identify the text, then take notes and make comparisons. Librarians may be the most disinterested viewers in their own libraries, for their approach is not narrowed by specific reference and research needs. And they are insiders. H.J. Martin, Monsieur Book History, admitted to André Jean that if he were not a librarian, he would never have been able to make the enormous number of comparisons among books and genres on which his work is based. You have the Martin advantage. Use it and pass it along in exhibitions, bibliographical notes, lists, articles, talks, any way you can. Perhaps you will speak, as Agassiz did on movement in families, about the sweeping and choppy movements of handwriting, the stance of printing types, the colors and shapes of text blocks, the stiff or supple structures of book bindings, the configurations of annotations, the play of picture and text. Please, just look at books, learn from it, pass it along.
0: much. So it somehow seems unlikely that Monsieur Martin was aware of a very similar passage in Maccaro's Publishers' Devices to 1640, saying that uh, that his book would be very much better if he were a librarian and had access to books on shelves. It uh, is a great opportunity, and as I've said before from this podium, the field which we are informed has no problems, only opportunities and challenges. The challenge at hand is to find room 523, where there is a reception where I hope you will join the speaker for a glass of wine and other things to eat and drink.